1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. One of the things that always fascinates me is ideas. Which ideas get accepted and implemented and which ones never seem to see the light of the day? Now, you might think that only the most profitable, the most implementable, the most impactful, the most logical, you know, make it through. But that's not my experience at all. And you would also expect that it's the experts that often drive um, or at the center of moving ideas forward because they should be the ones who know whether it's gonna work or how it's gonna work or why it's gonna work, should be able to take it into execution. Well, we're going to debunk both of those because my guest today has studied exactly this. What is it that makes ideas move forward? And That's what we want to talk about. It has big implications for innovation, and it has a massive impact on how we think about expertise in general. So my guest today is Bill Fisher. Bill is a professor of innovation management at IMD, which is a business school in Switzerland, for those who don't know. He co-founded and co-directs IMD's program on stri- driving strategic innovation in cooperation with the Sloan School of Management at MIT. And he's the author of a regular column in Forbes.com entitled The Ideas Business, which I can highly recommend. Bill's an engineer by training and an American by citizenship, but he's lived much of his life in Asia and Europe. And one of the most interesting things is he first moved to China in 1980 and later become the president of the China europe international business school ceibs in shanghai he's been awarded the silver magnolia award which is shanghai's highest award for foreigners contributing to the city's development and that was in 1999 bill's written a number of books the most recent one reinventing giants how chinese global competitor Higher has changed the way that Big companies transformed there are others as well but that's enough to get us started bill welcome to the show
2: thanks, Wand. It's a, it's a pleasure being on the show. It's always a pleasure talking to you.
1: I was about to say the same thing. We have fascinating conversations over the year, and I can hardly wait to do this one. So my statement about you is that you really study, track, think about how organizations and their leaders really work. And I know your specialty has been innovation, but in my mind, you're looking at how the thing functions, how it, how it comes together and happens. Now, that's my summary. So rather than take my word for it, what is it that's always fascinated you about organizations? And what have you learned?
2: So, so there's a couple things. The, the, the first thing I think is that when I look at the organizations that I work with and the nature of IMD's um, um, work is that we, we really only do executive education. So um, so I'm working with managers, real managers and real companies every every day of my life. And my sense is that Modern, complex organizations hire really great people and turn them into average performers very, very quickly. And I don't think it ought to be that way at all.
1: Okay. I would love that. They hire good people and turn them into average performers. Why? What are we getting wrong that destroys performance or declines? Yeah, performance? I, you
2: know what? It's not, and they don't do it deliberately, right? Nobody wants this to happen. But I think it's the, the fact that we are not building organizations to... Move ideas effectively we 're building organizations to build products to be to be um, efficient in terms of uh, productivity and the like and that was okay a while ago when when times were slower, but we 're all in the idea business today i mean nobody 's going to have the same careers that their that their superiors had or their bosses had because because things are moving much too fast and It's ideas that are moving that change, that are powering that change, and yet our organizations reflect a different time.
1: That's interesting. All right, so you've done some fascinating work over the years of tracking how ideas move. Tell us a little bit about that. What happens? How did you come to do it? Um, What are the insights?
2: yeah so i i I started because my my doctoral work was on the um, the economics of invention and one of the and my dissertation advisor was interested in team size and so we would look at the output of 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 patentable inventions um but, and, and compare it to team size and try to draw conclusions. And as that work progressed, um, it, I became more curious about what was actually going on in those teams rather than just measuring their size, but what, trying to get some feel for the dynamics of, um, of conversations. That's where I, I got into the conversation business because what I found, and this was based on the work of a fellow by the name of Tom Allen at MIT years ago, is that you can take a look, you can do sociometric mapping of how, Ideas move through organizations and get a really good idea of of both the speed in which they move but also the richness the the novelty that gets either associated with those ideas or subtracted with those ideas. So we set out to measure people talking to one another. We did it in the research triangle park and um, and w- we were able to to see as Tom Allen had found out, that in most organizations, there's only a handful of people who are at the nodes of the conversational networks about work. They're the people who bring ideas into the organization. They're the people who are able to make the links with with various performers, various thinkers within the organization. They're the, really the key to how well, uh, if if I can use the term, how well an organization thinks.
1: Okay. So I have to go back just to make sure we're all on the same page. When you say that there's only a handful of people at the nodes, what do you mean by a node? How do you define a node?
2: So so ideas don't move straight through an organization. They move they move in in very strange ways, often like a pinball machine, and what happens is is that there's a, a small set of people, maybe as few as 10 to 15 percent um, within the organization, who are able to take different ideas and put them together. And and those people are characterized we, we refer to them typically as T-shaped people. T-shaped people are people who have a broad perspective on the world. They're not they're not uninformed, they're not dumb, but they're broad. The other type of people that we look at are I-shaped people. They're very deep, but they tend not to be quite as interested or curious about what others are doing. They tend to be focused on what they're doing. Almost always the I people are creating really rich insights into the world around us, but those insights are very narrow and typically are, are, are not exactly what our Customers are looking for are not exactly the sorts of things that will differentiate us in the marketplace. So, we need some people who are sort of like switches in a telephone network who can put different ideas together and then move them more effectively because they have, um, you know, uh, this, this broader, they're more social for, 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 for many, for, among many things. So, they can move ideas more effectively.
1: So these people who um, I love the T-shaped and the I-shaped It's such a great de- description of what people do. Really, yeah. Uh, so if you um, were to think about people who are at these nodes, um, blanking on the name, we've, they've been called connectors in other places.
2: We right. Right. Or gatekeepers. Well. Gatekeepers in the way of opening up gates rather than closing them.
1: So they open. All right, And let me see if I can give you an example and make sure this is on the same page you were. A number of years ago, with a company that will remain nameless, we did an innovations exercise with their top 60 creative thinkers, contentious creative thinkers, I might say, around the world, and asked those groups to come up with some ideas. In and of themselves, the singular ideas that the group came up with were not that novel or that interesting, but combined at the executive team level by the executive team members, they became really powerful ideas. That's what you mean, I presume, by connecting yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: well, there's, there's a, you. Exactly. Know, when you look at the history of invention <laughs> and innovation, serendipity plays a really important part. And, and serendipity is when chance collisions take place and, um, and, and new ideas and really dramatically different ideas come out of those collisions. And I guess I'm of the opinion that Serendipity is too important to be left to chance. So, so what I'm looking for is ways of trying to load the odds in our favor that those collisions will happen more frequently and will happen among a wider range of individuals so we have a better chance of getting really some interesting different ideas.
1: All right, so then you find in this sociometric mapping, which is just really mapping who's talking to whom, how frequently. A lot of that is being done electronically now, not just in verbal conversations, but in the email conversations. You find people that are much broader and that are more the connectors, and they bring ideas together. And you find people who are eye-shaped and much deeper, so they may have some ideas, but they're not the movers of the ideas. That's correct. All right, so how do you... How do you create more collisions then?
2: Well you know there 's a bunch of ways to do it I mean so you, earlier when you introduced me and that was a very nice introduction you made the point that i 'm really interested in micro level types of of, of, of um, managerial interventions into the innovation process and and that 's really true i 'm really convinced that the difference between highly innovative organizations and and, and less innovative organizations is Based on the choices, the, the choi- managerial choices that are made about, for example, it really, they're really granular choices. Who's invited to, to meetings? Um, where do the meetings take place? What time do they take place? What's the ambiance of the room? Who sets the agenda? Those are very small pedestrian types of choices, but when you put them together, there they, are best hope for getting different voices to be heard and, and different insights to be considered than what we typically look at.
1: All right, so the different voices, the different insights would be the secret for having different ideas collide. Is that right?
2: I think so, yes. I mean, some of it's going to be chance. Um, but building architecture is incredibly important to determine, you know, what the probability is that you and I will meet and talk, and um, most of the most of the time, the organizations that I see, it's not that they make bad choices; it's really that they make no choices at all. So they're they're either unaware or. Uninterested in making these sorts of choices. And as a result, their conversations continue as they always had. And the way you described it, they're typically around short-term goals and higher efficiency. Uh, The way I would put it is variance reduction, getting the surprises out of what we do. And, and that used to be fine because, because for most of the time since the Industrial Revolution, there were long periods of time where efficiency was what differentiated success and failure in the competitive marketplace. Because the most efficient firms are the ones with either the lowest prices or the, or the highest margins. But, but today... Today, there's more surprise in the marketplace. So what we have to be doing is not reducing variance, but in a sense, we have to be enlarging variance, putting surprises in, surprises that delight our customers, surprises that differentiate ourselves in supply chains, all sorts of surprises. And those two cultures, they don't get along very well. So, you know... Or at all, maybe. And so what I think we need to be thinking about is are we making the right choices to do what we need to do? It may be as simple as saying, look, let's let's divide two groups let's let's put people who are working on the present over here and let's physically move and organizationally move and maybe even spiritually move the people who are going to work on the future put them somewhere else so that they can have different conversations and they don't stereotype each other as being weird or dangerous or what have you
1: right right or stuck in the mud or bureaucratic or whatever other words we put on those over yes, time, yes. memorial. I think this is fascinating. This notion that what we have to do in companies is enhance the variance, and for especially for expertise-driven leaders, I believe their mantra is about managing the risk, making yes. sure that we've taken the risk out of the equation, and we do that by managing efficiency and as you rightly say, by reducing variance. Right. That's how we get the right. controls out.
2: Yeah, yep um, three you know six Sigma the whole uh, black belt um, type of uh, quality control that Jack Welch made so popular those are those are necessary and appropriate types of choices for businesses that are mature and stable but you know lately there there, there are fewer and fewer businesses that can count on stable maturity for very long and so the the, the methodologies that succeeded in the past are no longer going to be the methodologies i believe that will succeed in the future.
1: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense as well. I think you're right and we're not prepared for that. We're not prepared. No, not we, at you know, all. We, I mean,
2: you know, to put, let me give you a granular example, i always when, when we work with fairly senior managers, usually the top teams, and i always make a plea to get some young people or people who are at the customer-facing positions into the room uh, when when we have conversations about strategy or about new ideas or what have you. And almost inevitably, I lose that battle. I lose that battle because of reasons that are... Uh, no longer useful. Reasons like, well, they're too young; they won't understand. Or, if we bring them in, what will their colleagues think? Well, you know. So there's always reasons for not doing it. But the result is that we have poorer conversations. You used the word contentious earlier. I I think that as we approach the future, we need to build. Teams and organizational cultures, but particularly teams that are more contentious rather than less. And, And the reason why is because the future is unknown whereas the present is uncertain. We're really good at managing uncertainty. We can change assumptions and make predictions. But when we go into the unknown, we're really not even sure what the rules of the game or who our rivals will be. So we need to be experimenting much more than we have in the past. And, you know, in a sense, we need to be setting up hypotheses to be be critiqued, um, to be addressed, to be attacked, to be tested, what have you. It's a fairly contentious environment. And that requires a different type of leadership style.
1: Yeah. I actually believe consistent with this, we're getting off on innovation for the moment, but I believe that the top performing teams, any company at any level, anywhere in the world, are the ones that are really good at dealing with contention and conflict. They almost embrace it. They know how to lean into it. They know how to discuss it and manage it without tearing the team apart. It doesn't become a fight. It just becomes a constructive debate. And Geez, are those teams few and far between in my experience?
2: Yeah, I mean even not not only in a team environment, but even in the social media, for example, or conferences that I go to rather than testing ideas. And rather than challenging them in, in a non-destructive fashion, what, what I'm seeing is over and over and over again, people are selling their ideas and there's no opportunity or less time or, or it's not the right place to really begin to enter into a debate or a discussion about, well, what are the merits of those ideas or what if the assumptions change? There's, we're just not taking the time to, do, to address the unknown in a, in, in a sophisticated fashion.
1: Right. That's yeah. Yes. Everybody wants the solution that's been done and tried and tested. Thank you very much. We'll have one of those. Let's go as opposed to let's talk about the assumptions, as you, as you rightly said. All right, so but let's go back, though, to this whole point about innovation. And i back to your notion of T-shaped individuals and I-shaped individuals. So the T are broad, and they have presumably a broad network so that they bring ideas together from disparate places across the organization, inside and outside. The I-shaped are more of the... Expertise that drill deeply into their own particular area. Are there other qualities about T-shaped people or I-shaped people that are worth noting?
2: Well, I, so there are. I, and I, I want to make sure that, that neither is better or worse. They're just different. I-shaped people... Um, tend to succeed. Well, the, the performance management systems that we use in most organizations are, tend to reward I-shaped people because their output is more easily measurable. Um, T-shaped people can't help themselves. I, they they simply can't help themselves. They're too curious about a variety of things to be able to become I-shaped. So they might have i shaped envy, but it's not going to help. And and yet, most organizational performance management systems um, don't recognize them. They don't recognize the contribution that they're making. Um, And so their T-shaped behavior is literally coming out of their lives um, with very little reward other than the intrinsic satisfaction of being involved in a lot of different conversations.
1: All right. Um, and ca- can you move an I shaped person to more T shaped, and vice versa, or is this recognizing where I am and working with what I've got?
2: So, so yes, yeah. So I I guess I believe that um, the the better approach is to say, look, we've got eyes and T's. Let's make sure that we have enough of that we need, and that probably means. More I's than T's, but but enough T's to be able to introduce variants in our conversation. And let's put them together uh, organizationally or, you know, in some way so that we can count on them talking to one another. Um, I, I... I once, right before the, uh, well, actually right after the, the the Nokia debacle, I was up at one of their research laboratories, and I was interviewing w- the, one of the managers of the, of the unit, and what he said, so to speak, because now I'm putting my words into his language, but what he said was, we had an insufficient number of Ts, so we knew all about engineering, but we didn't know about fashion or what was going on in the the mind of our young purchases. And if you remember at the time, Nokia was positioned to be more of a fast-moving consumer good than Ericsson, for example, which was always viewed as being a highly well-engineered product. So if you're selling as an FMCG, but you're not putting sufficient number of Ts into the conversation, you're you're setting yourself up for, for failure.
1: That, I, this explains in so many ways why you take great companies that are doing brilliantly and they suddenly hit a brick wall and seem never to come back from it. Um, right, right. This thing that, you know, like Ericsson, a company that I've worked with historically on a bunch of occasions, and I would argue with you they are brilliant at making sure the engineering of that product works precisely as it should. But when they needed to do something different in order to grow their presence in a broader, different marketplace, they didn't handle it very well. I mean, they started with a um, partnership with Sony, thinking that Sony could do this. But the two of them don't even speak the same language, Sony and Ericsson. So that didn't go quite as well as everybody had hoped it would go. So I see that. And particularly when you have an organization that is a very – Structured control, reduced variance, I-shaped technical expertise, engineering, financial controlling oriented culture, you're just not going to tolerate some of the T-shaped behavior, I guess I should say, as easily as perhaps you should.
2: Absolutely. I mean, a good example of this, I believe, is Samsung. You know, (laughs) Samsung is probably the best contract manufacturer in the world, either Samsung or Foxconn. And Samsung, and that means getting variants out, no surprises. But they dream about being Apple. They dream about being a consumer products giant. And the, and, the, and, and, and the dreams only go so far. But if you're, if you're not managing your internal culture to support those dreams, in other words, at least at some parts of the company, putting variants back in, you're not going to be able to achieve your dreams. And I, I actually think that's the reason why Samsung has failed repeatedly in its effort. It's caught up to Apple, but never overtaken it in my mind.
1: So when you started this show, you said, if I can quote you directly, is that we hire really good people and we turn them into average performers. Is right. that is this the reason you think we turn them into average performers? We just don't collide enough crazy ideas from enough different places with enough variance to really... No, I mean I, I think
2: that's a major part of it. I, I, another big part, I believe, is that top management creates very vivid visions of the future, high aspirations, but the people in the organization know the reality is that the work is going to be more drudgery and and those high uh, uh, aspirations Aspirations are meant for the investing audience, not for the workers in sort of the organization, so they begin to lose respect for the way in which the organization represents itself and 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 who they see it working. I think it, 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 there's a corrosion of belief that we can do this and and or that new ideas are valued or that we have a future to be you know i 'm working with an organization now it's it, it, general electric appliances. Uh, which is now owned by Hire, and they say one of the really refreshing things that's happened to them since the Hire acquisition is that they've been given their future back, that they're no longer playing not to lose. For the first time in a long time, they're playing to win. And the energy associated with that is really remarkable. So so I think... I think there's a lot of corrosion of belief in the organization and and eventually myself for being part of this organization when the organization is unresponsive to fulfilling the talent promise of the people they hire.
1: All right. Two minutes before we take a break on this one. What would you encourage people to do to develop the kind of capabilities that are going to let them introduce variants. What's your recommended set of actions, ideas, I uh, anything? Right.
2: So I think that um, that's a really difficult question. It's easier <laughs> to critique, you know, the, the problems than than to suggest good good sugge- make good suggestions. But 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 I have a few. But I I think that so I think innovation. So earlier you said we're leaving innovation behind for a minute. Here's what I want to say: I think innovation should be a verb, not a noun. I think innovation. When I, I when I start off every executive class by saying to my even with the innovators in the group, I start off by saying, "How many of you have innovation as a as a." Sp- a specific part of your job description as you understand it, and inevitably, I get somewhere between twenty-five and thirty percent of the class putting their hands up. That's not enough, right? That's absolutely not enough. And so, what I think, we, I think the reason is, is because they associate innovation with some group, a noun, you know, the R and D guys, the the techies, the IT people. Whereas I think what we ought to be doing is trying to encourage everybody to think of themselves as a possible innovator. I don't want to burden people with the belief that they have to be innovative, but I think they have to be innovation supporters. And and I think that therein begins the – the. I think that's critical. And then the, the complementary piece of this is to say that Change is continuous and not episodic. Change is every day. Somewhere, customers, supply chain materials, somewhere, change is possible every day. And and we need to think of it as a a positive thing rather than something that is, um, you know, onerous or something we want to avoid. And my sense is that if we can put those two things together, we can begin to create organizations that – you know, are curious about how they can become more innovative in HR, in marketing, you know, in talent retention, and then begin to take some chances and practice those things. Small, bearable risks, not crazy, wild, you know, complete transformation. But I think if you begin to build a culture over time of an organization where people are authorized to take some chances and and to you know to promote both failures and successes and talk about them, then you then you're at least putting the organization on a pathway into the future that has a higher probability of uh, of, of encouraging change so i think i think innovation innovation does this all the time it, i mean at least in highly perf- respected innovative firms they're doing these things all the time i believe innovation should become the informer of leadership skills in the future, that that or at least be in that conversation, that we need to be thinking about what are the lessons of innovation that we can apply to you and I, the individual leader, so that we can begin to change our behaviors and encourage others to, 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 to emulate that.
1: Wow. Okay, there's much to pursue on that idea, Bill. So great opportunity to take a break. We'll come back. Um, with me is Bill Fisher. Bill is a professor of innovation management at IMD, and as you can tell, quite passionate for a long time in his professional career on what it takes to make teams and organizations be more innovative. And I think the thing, Bill, in this part that really sticks out to me is this notion of increasing variance not to decreasing, mm-hmm. controlling it and producing efficiency, introducing variants and having ideas collide as a way of introducing that variance, And there's the spark for innovation. When we come back though, we're going to carry on this conversation about how do you create a culture around innovation that does exactly what Bill just said. We'll be right back.
0: All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to Wanda.Wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's Wanda.Wallace at LeadershipForumInc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: Welcome back to the show. With me today is Bill Fisher. Bill is Professor of Innovation Management at IMD, where he has co-founded and co-directs the IMD program on driving strategic innovation in cooperation with the Sloan School of Management at MIT. Bill has a fabulous regular column in Forbes.com called The Ideas Business. I highly encourage you to tune into that one. And he's written several books. Most recent one is Reinventing Giants, How Chinese Global Competitor Hire Has Changed the Way that Big Companies Transform. We've been talking about innovation. Um, I should say innovating because Bill's statement, it shouldn't be a noun, it should be a verb. And it should be a verb that everybody is doing every day all of the time, that it's not episodic, that it's positive, not onerous. I love that. And the general notion that what we need to be doing is increasing variance, particularly as you're looking forward into the future where the future is unknown and it's only different ideas and the ability to deal with the contentious, competing, different ideas, bring them together, stitch them together, that creates the real innovative, process, I guess is the way I will use it. Now, Bill, you gave a great statement at the end because I want to focus now on, so how do we get there? How do we get organizations that are open to this notion of taking bearable risk and that feel that they, you know, want to promote and authorize changes? And you said that innovation should become the informer of leadership skills, that we (laughs) should apply the lessons of innovation to us as individuals. Tell me what yes. you mean more specifically by that.
2: So, so I, I think if you look at contemporary innovation um, theory, if you will, that's too grand a term. But if you think about what people are talking about today about innovation, th- there's a number of characteristics that I think have to be part of an organization's culture if they're going to succeed in the future. And I'm assuming through innovation, First and foremost, is it has to be customer centric. Um, it, it, it has to that has to be the orientation of everybody, and and it's the customer experience. It's not just the customer. It's that it's an appreciation for the journey that the customer goes through, and a recognition that there are many places to intersect that journey with with things that win a customer over. But the customer experience is is, is primary. Second is. Because the customer experience is changing so fast as a result of you know the, 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 the our our world in, in in a new internet age um, because we're and soon to become internet of things because our our world around us is changing, so are our expectations but changing so fast that we have to be experimental in the way in which we address the customer experience. So because we can't predict the unknown, we've never been there before. So experimental is the second characteristic. And because we experimental suggests that we're not going to get it right, you know, frequently, we have to be fast. We have to be fast to get into opportunities. We have to be fast to get out of the ones that aren't working out. I think we have to be open uh, and inclusive because increasingly the customer experience is so complex that no one organization can do it itself. And that's the reason why ecosystems are becoming so important. Um, And we have to be, um, I, I believe, generous in terms of the opportunities we create for others, the the recognition and rewards that we share with others, because what we need to do is build ecosystems that are able to jump from one S-curve, if you will, that characterizes an industry to the next. And the only way you do that is by watching out for your ecosystem partners. So my sense is that if if we give leaders... That set of characteristics or attributes of innovation, it's also a good start for talking about how are you doing in your leadership to, to to be faithful to those attributes.
1: From somebody who does leadership and regular, this is music to my ears, because if there is anything you would, in that if you look at any employee survey in any capacity anywhere, any 360 evaluation, Any of that, what is it that makes a leader inspirational, you're going to come up with some very similar components. This notion that you're willing to experiment, and that means move fast in and fast out. I would label that just as priority setting. Are we going to keep doing this thing, really? Or can we all see that this is a waste of time now? That's It's another, or what is it that really matters here? And this open, inclusive Um, You described it in terms of the ecosystem, so the partners in the world that allow you to deliver the customer experience. I think about it in terms of the ecosystem of all the different voices and perspectives and contributions that get made to each other's success inside the organization. Um, And diversity obviously fits right in there, but I want to talk more about diversity of thought, diversity of perspective, diversity of experience. Right. then. Generous with time. I think one of, generous with time, but you also said generous with recognition and rewards. I worry in some ways that what we're doing with performance management and bonus reviews and year-end feedback and ranking systems and etc. is just driving people to be, as you said at the beginning, more I-shaped and less T-shaped.
2: Yeah. Um, yes, very it, much so.
1: The more I can focus on my deliverable, me what it is that's in my objective set, the better I'm going to do over the wrong time. And that kills generosity. And by the way, kills collaboration. And you would argue with um, killing innovation. So if we start with just those three, experimental, open, inclusive, and generous, and talk about where they apply inside and outside the organization, I can't imagine a better starting point for evaluating your leadership, your leaders in general.
2: Yes, I I would agree. You know, I think it 's important to make the point that every organization has a few, has a present and a future, and they have to manage both of those and you it 's not just about the future because if you ignore the present you 'll never get to the future but if you don 't pay attention to the future, you know the present was um, will be defeating and 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 what I see is so much of what we do in organizations is present centric it's all about the short term it's all about today and and so that's the justification for not taking risks and that's the justification for not being it not being generous and being demanding of our of our value chain partners or our ecosystem partners in ways that reduce their commitment to working with us in the future, so I, I think that we need to recognize that there are fundamental differences between the present and the future, but we have to protect the future because the present the present is measurable. The you know the present is tangible, and and those things carry a lot of weight in the political conversations of the firm.
1: Yes, and you don't you're right, you're right. You can't throw that out because you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. In effect, you don't right. want to lose what's there, but you don't want to you don't want to starve it either, for that matter. So that's the future oriented. So, Bill, are you a believer that the sort of innovating aspects? Need to be pulled out and separated from the present protection aspect, so they have to be um, in different places or locations. Or can they? So that's against- a great
2: question, and I think that question is the most debated. Topic among people who look at organ at innovation at the organizational level today, because the the perf- quote unquote preferred solution is to sp- is is to split those two groups and and the present remains where it is and the future we move somewhere else. This is what Nestle did with Nespresso. This is what IBM did with the PC Junior. This happens all the time, and the the good thing about that is it allows the future to be measured on its own and taken seriously as a, as a legitimate part of the organization, um, and, and it allows it to have a different culture. And I, I think the most recent example of this is um, – uh, alphabet the the reformation of the google community into a uh, holding company alphabet but then very different cultures within the different businesses so uh, so the the people who are doing life extension research are not supposed to be measured or act or or organized in the same way as the people who do advertising search so okay. so and that makes sense to me but the problem is is that you're condemning the people who are working in the present to no future, because they will continue to do what they're doing in the ways that they're doing in the present, and at some point that model runs out of steam, and, and what what's fashionably called disruption occurs, and they're gone. So I think the alternative, much more difficult, but the alternative is to say, we know ways of Managing in the future, customer experience-centric, experimental, fast, generous, open, inclusive. And we're going to do that in every part of our business. And we're going to say that we're going to hope that every part of our business has a future, but it will be a different future than the present. And and I think that's a really, um, for me, that's um, um, uh, an ethically more appropriate thing to do because it doesn't, create winners and losers within the organization. Um, And it doesn't reward the people who are getting us into the future by, you know, by working hard today with no jobs at all in the future. But it's more difficult to do. And and, that's that would be my preference to do it that way.
1: Well, I always see you have a great innovation or incubator or some new idea off in a separate building in a separate location, and they come up with great things. But the moment you try to integrate that back in so that you can get scale out of it is the moment everything falls apart. And so this whole thing of taking innovation to scale is something that you need the two halves, the present and the future, joined up, I think, from the beginning. At least that's been my observation from afar, watching some of these Failures, I should say, rather than real successes.
2: Right, and I would agree. And 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 one of the ways that I'm seeing that, if I, I mentioned General Electric Appliances earlier, one of the ways I'm seeing that is they they really have, um, I think, profited. Not, I'm not talking financially, although I think they have, but they've profited as an organization by adopting more end-to-end teamwork, so that. People who are starting an idea are also going to be the people who are going to deliver that idea into the marketplace. It's not going to be a handover of some sort. And and so as a result, I think, the people that I see in these end-to-end teams have considerable pride in what they're doing and ownership, and they have a stake in the future uh, um, that is quite profound. And, and I think that um, the the reconstruction of teams is one of the important building blocks of doing this for the future.
1: That makes a lot of sense. So that we stop with a pass-off, where people miss the whole core point of the idea and feel like they have to turn it into something they actually understand, and they're right. lost. Everything is lost, and right. oh, I've seen that 1,001 times over. All right, I'm going to shift gears, sort of shift gears. It's going to sound like it to listeners, but I know you think it isn't. You've written about the end of expertise. Why do you yes.
2: say that? I, 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 a year or two ago, I was struck by the number of times I would be speaking to people who have expertise at the managers who have expertise at the core of their business model, and yet they're telling me that that expertise is either a commodity or widely available on the internet, or you know. But the 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 distinctiveness of their expertise is is rapidly receding. And it it occurred to me that for years, there are so many organizations that I've worked with or I've worked in where we thought that our expertise was, the, was our guarantee for the future. But, in fact, if expertise is becoming widely available as a commodity um, and, and free as, um, for, for price, then we need to rethink well, what is it that our business model is reflecting and how do we differentiate ourselves without expertise as the core or a different so- type of expertise.
1: I love it. I'll take the bait on that one. So, and I agree with you that expertise in some areas is becoming more of a commodity because it's going to be automated for one, a lot of things. And for two, anybody can go look it up, pretty much anything on the internet. Right. Wisdom and insight about it, perhaps not, but the pure raw how-to we can find. Okay, so you said that we have to reconfigure our businesses so that expertise is not at the core.
2: How? Well, you know, I don't think you'd ever dismiss expertise at the core, but I think that it, that delivery of the expertise or application of the expertise has really needs to be rethought from where it's been in the past, and the and the models by which we align the delivery and the content with our with our clients needs to be rethought as well.
1: Can you give an example of somebody who has done that rethinking?
2: Yeah, so I I think one of the things that so let me just preface this by saying that you know some of the examples that I heard was I was with a big civil engineering consulting firm and they told me you know there's no mystery anymore to what we do it's all available on the internet I'm an old civil engineer lapsed civil engineer that's the way I should put it and and that came as you know real surprise to me and I looked into it and it's it's pretty true. Similarly, I was I was in Singapore when um, the Singapore government was experimenting with Watson for uh, walking rounds in medical schools. And, and I'm aware that that experiment didn't work out the way that everybody had hoped, but it's not the end. It's just the beginning, and, and there'll be more of applications of artificial intelligence to, 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 to medicine and law and things of that nature. I, I was with a... Um, a a Swiss private banker who told me that um, the, the secret to their success is an algorithm that they use for um, asset management. And when I pressed her on what she used, she said, well, I, I found an, an algorithm on the Internet that's um, uh, cheaper and more effective, uh, actually free and more effective. So this is the sorts of things I was seeing. And, you know, when I, what, what that seemed to me is that we need to redefine our relationship with the client. It can't just be the purveyor of solutions that are based on 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 private knowledge but increasingly it has to be a more integrated relationship with the with, with, with the client around uh, a multitude of things so t-shaped people are going to become more important um, they've always been important in consulting because in consulting um, you need t-shaped people to to pick up a conversation at a social event and carry it through to a proposal the proposal gets written by eyes but it's the t-shaped person usually a partner who's who's selling the and leading the and and then leading the team um, but I think we need to rethink how we do this with other organizations as well um, I, I And the timing, right? So maybe increasingly some of the expertise that we share with our clients should be not um, solution-providing expertise, but... Provocation expertise. Maybe, maybe the, the the goal is not to tell them what to do, but to get them thinking differently as an organization, so that they use their tacit knowledge to be able to solve the problems rather than relying on our external um, uh, expertise. Uh, and th- those those sound like easy. Those sound like easy conversions, but they're not. The, everything changes. The, 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 the talent that's required, the, um, the way in which you convey the information, the, 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 the period between one conveyance and the next, I, I can see almost continuous sharing of, 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 of information, whereas in the past it came in the, in the form of a very impressive report. Um, the pricing. Of this. Um, and all of these sorts of things really challenge the existing business models.
1: This is, um, I'm going to connect two fairly disparate thoughts here because it strikes me that what you're saying has a lot of merit. So this notion that we change the relationships we have with our clients so that we're not mm-hmm. information providers or solutions providers, we're much more engaging them with thinking or with challenging them, confirming what they know, and ultimately what you're saying is we have a relationship with those clients.
2: Right. And they come yes, right, trust of us. And the ultimate goal, you know, is the, Classical, trusted business advisor.
1: Okay, right. But, so
2: but we see that That's in not a the bad place to wind business. up.
1: Yeah. We see that in the services business for sure. So financial services, professional services. But I'm going to now make a move to consumer goods side. Um, a guest on the radio show a couple weeks ago, Ann Bear Thompson, talking about brand citizenship. So classic, basic brands like Apple that right. people like and trust and are willing to admire and therefore be loyal to Starts with number one in the equation is, do I trust you? Are you providing something useful for my life? Are you making my life better? And then we move on to a lot more of the intangibles that I believe as a customer you provide and that therefore make me loyal to you over the long term. We're not talking about corporate social responsibility. We're talking fundamentally about the trust equation at a new level. And it strikes me that's what you're saying here. Yeah. Is that this whole yeah. relationship I, you know, trust dynamic is at the heart of it?
2: Absolutely. I I always thought that I own the Apple brand. I, I've been Apple um, a user since probably 1982, uh, probably exactly 1982, with my first Mac SE. Um, and I've always felt that you know this is a brand that cares about me. Um uh, and and I felt like it was fun to be associated with it. I don't think that way anymore about Apple. Apple strikes me as being just another big company that's selling, you know, commodity products. I'm locked into them because of iTunes and iPhotos and stuff like that, but I don't have the the um, exuberance about this relationship that I used to have.
1: That's interesting. And I would say, if you listen to Anne's model too, you would say that Apple has lost some of the things that actually really gave it some of their identity in the first place.
2: Exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, yes.
1: And one of those, interestingly enough, Bill, for you, is how they treat their employees.
2: Yes. And, and, um, I, I think that the old days, where, where you know you think back to the, the, the Mac and, and the creation of um, well in, in the creation of the iPhone and the teams that created the uh, the Apple Watch and I've written about those in, in my Forbes column. Those teams were really interesting in the way in which they were assembled. They were diverse. Um, they were highly experimental. They were big risk ta- you know big risk takers and the like. But you don't get that sense anymore. You don't even get that sense when you walk into the Apple retail outlets anymore. Um, it, it's 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 too big. It's it's too successful. The biggest problem with innovation is success, so, <laughs> and um, I think we're seeing it with with I think we're seeing it at the in, at the firm level with Apple, but I also think we're seeing it at the industry level with smartphones, which which I believe are now plateauing in terms of um, their ability to to address the customer experience. And uh, I fully expect that this is a target for disruption in the not-too-distant future.
1: Yeah, it will be interesting to see who does that and how they do it. I think you said an interesting thing there. So just in our kind of wrap-up, Bill, you said that the problem with innovation is it leads to success. And I'm going to parallel that by saying when we have success, that means I need to protect something. And I protect something by increasing efficiency and reducing variance. And therein, as yes. you would argue, kill the innovation that started it in the first place.
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. Yep. Okay. And, and it's because... That the because typically in mature industries um, where products risk becoming commodities, um, and I think the smartphones are clearly there now. Price is important. That means efficiency is important. And once again, we're talking about variance reduction and the ability to you know to to create a big surprise gets diminished by the portfolio compliance. That's required from complex organizations that are offering many things that are integrated together for what's considered to be a "quote unquote" seamless customer experience. That and is. I think <clears throat> we reach a point at the industry level because <clears throat> I think industries get disrupted, firms don't. You know, we we not only lost Kodak, we lost Agfa and the film yeah. business at Fuji Film. We not only lost Nokia, we lost Sony Ericsson and Motorola. And when 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 you think about okay. what happens. At some point, I believe the customer's life begins moving faster than the ability of the firms to respond, the, the incumbent market leaders to respond. And
1: Bill, we're going to have to point. stop. Sadly, we're going to have yes. to stop. And I think that was a perfect moment to end. My guest okay. today is Bill Fisher. The notion is about innovation, and innovation is a verb, increase variance, collide ideas, and get extremely centered on the, how fast the customer's experience is moving. Bill, thanks for being a guest today. It was fabulous.
2: Thanks, Wanda. It was great being with you.
1: Join us next week for another episode on how to get out of your comfort zone.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.